Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week where we interview people from all walks of life that have made their way into the C-Suite, perhaps for big public multinational companies, global brands, private organizations, upstarts, entrepreneurial organizations, not-for-profits, associations, and this isn't always the CEO who's joining us. Sometimes it is the CMO, the chief people officer, the CFO, the COO, but today, in fact, it is the CEO. His name is Ami Senkaren. He is the CEO of the Religion of Sports, the company that has both been founded by names you recognize, Tom Brady, Michael Strahan, and Gotham Chopra, of course, the son of Deepak Chopra, a guest recently on our other podcast. Amit, welcome to today's conversation. Thanks, Scott. Excited to be here. I appreciate that. I appreciate your time joining us from Dallas today. And I'd like to have you maybe reorient all of the viewers and listeners to what is the organization known as the Religion of Sports? Yeah, we're, we're a content company. We, um, we were founded with kind of a singular thesis of answering the question, why sports matter? Why do we put our kids in these things? What do they learn from sports? Um, resilience, failure, dealing with loss, uh, success, mental toughness. And so uh, that's the ethos of the brand. Um, Gotham, who you mentioned, uh, my business partner uh, is sort of the founder. His father, Deepak Chopra, um, is who he learned uh, from as, and as his father rose to prominence and became an expert in the field of meditation and spirituality, Gotham would always say, hey, everything you talk about in the world of spirituality, I live and feel and think and breathe in sports. So he grew up in Boston. I grew up in Houston, felt the same way, actually, even though we hadn't talked about this however many years ago that was. Um, but, you know, he was like, I I'm rooting for all the same outcome with 70,000 people, even though I may have nothing in common with these people. What is going on here? What, what is this about community? And he's been a content creator, though. That's how he's learned his trade. And so, and over the last 20 years, he's created phenomenal content like Kobe Bryant's Muse um, and so many other projects. And so we formed this company um, four and a half years ago now to answer that question, why sports matter, through content. And so that's what we've done. We've created unscripted content like Tom versus Time or Stephen versus the Game with Steph Curry or Simone versus herself with Simone Biles, Man in the Arena with Tom Brady, it's about now, Greatness Code. And all these are, are kind of, different versions of that, answering that question through content and trying to elicit that kind of human response. Amit, your path is quite remarkable. You earned a business degree from Columbia. You spent a decade as a consultant with BCG, Boston Consulting Group, one of the most prestigious groups of intellectuals in the world. How did you choose to pivot from that earlier part of your career to the religion of sports? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've made my decision throughout my career based on people. I, um, you know, interestingly, the two people that I've met while in business school in New York, Mort Meyerson and Gotham, I actually ended up working with over a decade later. Um, but, you know, when I left BCG, I decided that, you know, I reflected really deeply on my career and path and what made me happy and tried to actually go really deep into what, where did I find passion? What excited me? And, 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 you know, it always came down to these sort of moments where I could see a connection between a decision or thing that I made and action and impact. And so inevitably it came to me that I, you know, I needed to be involved in small organizations, I needed to be involved in things that are a little bit more entrepreneurial. And I actually, between BCG and, 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 um, and religious sports, I took a job with Mort Meyerson, who was the former um, CEO of EDS and Pro Systems and, He's been a uh, phenomenal entrepreneur in the Dallas area and, and, um, and uh, also a philanthropist for many years. 
he has a family office and, and, and I worked with him to, to drive a lot of his direct investing um, and really got a great experience of working with businesses that were, you know, from, from zero or 5 million in revenue up to 50 and working with them, some in the interim CEO capacity, some as an active board member, but to, 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 to get a taste of what this looked like. And, 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 and it, it suited me. I, I enjoyed it. Um, wanted something, you know, my own to drive and Gotham and I reconnected Gotham had just, um, set up a show called Religion of Sports, where Tom Brady and Michael Strahan, who you referenced, were executive producers. The show was basically what our business is now. It answered that question why sports matter across six hours of television, whether it was you know the Celtic and Ranger rivalry in Scotland, or it was um, uh, uh, you know about the Syrian refugee, all Syrian refugee team um, of soccer in in, in Germany, um, and Gotham. Sat, sat down, we reconnected through Beach Front and said, I think this is bigger than a show. I think it's bigger than a production entity. I think it's a movement, a media enterprise. And, you know, I got really jazzed about, excited and, and, and jazzed about sketching that out. What could that be? And we pitched Tom and Michael around it. And, you know, the rest is sort of history. Um, and, and that, but, but, the, but the driver to answer your question was kind of being involved in something that, you know, I could see the impact on and over time grow and I, and I, and I, you know, resonate, you know, people, it always comes back to people, of course. And so it resonated with Gotham as an individual as well, which was made a huge difference. Uh, let's answer that question. Why sports matter. I am the father with my wife of three young sons who at present time are seven, 10 and 11. I start all of my boys playing tennis at the age of three. They hate tennis, wow. but like most Utahns, I tell them, pick the flute or play tennis. Which do you want? And so they, they, uh, they acquiesce and play tennis. But what they have discovered this year, to my horror, is basketball. And they love basketball. They live it. They breathe it. They play it every day. They watch the Jazz, who I'm convinced play 12 games a week because I swear the TV is on 24 hours a day with the Jazz, including last night with the Lakers. Um, why are sports so important? You know, it's interesting, by the way, uh, quick tangent, personally, I, I have a 12 and 10 year old similar age. Uh, and I feel like because of my background, my passion, and sounds like growing up the way your kids grew up, uh, where, where, where that's all I cared about, they're almost the opposite. They're, they're fine passion in other ways. My son, it's all about esports and, and finding competitive and gaming and drums, which is great. My daughter's musical theater. But I think the same thing is true, regardless of what it is, which is, you know, it's 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 why you put your kids, I assume, in into tennis at three. It's not because you want um, them to become Roger Federer or Serena yeah. Williams or others. Right. It's because you want them to learn something. You want to learn early age. Oh, it takes work to get good at something. Oh, I once I put a little bit of effort in here, I can actually see improvement in progress. Oh, if I lose or I get hurt, it's not the end of the world. I can bounce back. I mean, that those are the things that it doesn't matter if you're three years old and a beginner or you're Tom Brady trying to struggle for excellence after 20 plus years in the NFL, um, those things translate and those things translate to life. And um, we talk about them in the same context with our own team. We talk about, we use Man of the Arena as a masterclass and how do you become a better human? Um, and so I think that was, that's the reason we think that sports are important. And what we found really interestingly is that those elements of greatness aren't unique to just sports. They're there in every profession. They're there in entrepreneur, entrepreneurial endeavors. They're there if you look at Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and others. They're there if you look at musicians who are phenomenal. I mean, there's so many things that from all these people you can learn. And, you know, it's all comes back to kind of the same pillars, the same themes. 
Amith, I was raised playing tennis at the age of four or five, played my entire life, high school, college, was ranked as a young player, and then uh, the competition became so much, I put my racket away. I still play it for pleasure as an adult. I forced my kids into it early on, thought it was a good skill. I don't know a lot of people playing football or basketball or hockey competitively after the age of 30. Well, we know one, right? But uh, beyond that, it's very rare. Tennis seems to be a great sport. But I realized that my boys, I think, like basketball because it's a team sport. Tennis is not a team sport. I mean, yes, if you're on like Davis Cup, right? But tennis is not a collegial sport. You're out there to win or you lose. Not a lot of camaraderie. You kind of depend on yourself. Yes, doubles, but you know, that's kind of an outlier. And I think one of the things my kids are learning the most out of basketball, a sport I have no passion about, know nothing about, I'm learning about it, is this idea of being part of a team, being part of something bigger than yourself, having responsibility bigger to yourself. But you mentioned this concept, your son likes esports, a term I'd not heard before. I know what that is, obviously, but talk about what esports is. You mentioned it's a passion of your son, and what are the benefits that come from playing esports? Well, I think benefits I'll have to, I'll have to uh, uh, embellish a bit, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, no, esports is, is electronic you know, uh, gaming. It's basically, you know, and it's become so popular the last decade yeah. uh, from Fortnite to you know, so many games that have gotten extremely popular, World of Warcraft. The, 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 um, you know, what's happening is, you know, same thing, right, which is, these kids, you know, and I say kids because a lot of times they are 12, 13, 14, 15, are becoming the best in the world at a particular game, which requires hand-eye coordination, which requires coordination in some cases, to your point on teamwork, across headsets yeah. with people around the world yeah. in, you know, participating in a particular game. And, you know, billions and billions of dollars have been already created in teams. Um, we've spoken to some of those teams. They do the same thing that professional sports teams do, meaning uh, NBA teams or tennis players and others, which is you got to sleep at the right hours. You got to think about nutrition. You got to think about what do you, how do you all work together as a team? And so it's the same essence. Um, and I think coming back to your point, it's actually a really interesting point you're bringing up, which is, you know, what are the characteristics of those who excel and become great at an individual sport? And what are the characteristics of those who are great at the team sports? And inevitably, after some of the interviews and the conversations we get to, you kind of hear some of that that comes across, which is, you know, if it's Sean White, we did a, we did an episode of Greatness Code with him last year. You know, him, you know, talking about internal mastery and pursuit of excellence um, around, you know, a particular snowboard runner and dealing with, and like, you know, he goes so deep. And it was a, one of the best episodes, but it was all about internal process and internal excellence. And then you talk about Tom and his Greatness Code episode, just to use those two as, as, as interesting um, uh, reactions. And he talks all about how in that one moment, in that one game, the offense was clicking in a way and he was in tune with his teammates in a way where he wasn't saying anything and they were just feeling each other in a way that he's never felt or seen before. And it's interesting that, that um, you know, when you think about excelling at the highest level from both in both those examples, individual and team actually, you know, it's different versions of greatness, but just come across in different ways. Uh, let's pivot to your role as CEO of Religion of Sports and what it's like to be the CEO of a, a newer upstart organization, entrepreneurial firm, brand probably bigger than maybe your revenue or number of employees, but uh, we won't go there per se. I'd like to kind of know what it's like to, being the C what it's like to be a CEO 
uh, from your vantage point. I read an interview where you did, I think it was a print interview, where you talked about how when you launched this organization, you kind of sat back and felt like it would all start coming in your way. And then you had mm -hmm. some humbling and realized, you know, maybe that isn't how it work, works. Maybe I have to actually go out and, you know, and prospect and such. Talk about some of the, not humiliation, but some of the lessons that you've learned that have maybe changed your paradigm. You thought it was going to be like this, and now you realize, no, it's going to be like this. Give us two or three examples of how you've had your mindset changed um, as the CEO. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's um, and they happen every day, by the way. Right. When you're running an organization, it's you think everything is going to be great or you plan for everything being great. Then you also get ready for uh, changes. And so, so it's not it's not it's that hasn't stopped. And I don't think it will stop. And I think that's just part of the process. But, yeah, I'll give you a few examples early on. You know, uh, there was this sort of belief that you, you have Gotham and you go look at his resume. He's created phenomenal content. Um, you have Tom and Michael as co-founders. And you know that I, I had a belief that recruiting um, and and, uh, and in particular and extension into new areas would be slam dunks, um, and it would be you know be, be able to tell the story to, in a clear way and get people to come aboard. And what I learned is when you're talking about people's lives and livelihood, if you're not able to give them a very clear answer around you know not just obvious things like compensation role and so forth but why is this thing going to be successful what is the pathway from where we are now to where uh we're going um you're not going to get the greatest people and i would have conversation after conversation of people that come from certain different backgrounds and some of it was you know trying to find people who maybe you know weren't necessarily entrepreneurial but some of it was i had to look internally and say we have to have a better answer to these questions we have to know and maybe it's not right for us to assume we're going to expand in a particular pace. Um, but yeah, we lost recruits around social media. We lost recruits in audio in early days. Um, we had people come aboard and leave. Um, and so, you know, what Gotham and I did a lot at the early stages was say, you know, let's go nail this. And that's actually was part of the inspiration, not only for Tom versus Time, um, but also for us to build a funding round around that announcement. This happened in 2018 because. Um, we knew that we needed not only, again, you know, big splash press and so forth, but evidence that, oh, we actually had 100 million views around this thing. This thing was actually commercially successful. We actually had a new model and a way of doing things. And we used that as kind of a benchmark to go recruit and bring in others. And I think, you know, that actually taught us a lot around, um, you know, it's not just about uh, 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 finding a way to make to create a press release, which you know, unfortunately, happens a lot in our industry. It's it's about the next press release, the next thing that's happening to just generate momentum. But if you want people to stick around with you and, and make change, uh, you need to actually create uh, a value and, and show people a path. Um, and I'll, and I'll say another one has been, you know, uh, retention in the pandemic has been really challenging for us. Um, uh, you know. The, one of the things that I think in media, you know, media is an interesting world. I feel like tech, uh, if you're a software company, um, you know, the pandemic unlocked so many things for you because a lot of, a lot of people that I've talked to, other CEOs, other people I know, uh, have businesses that were already remote. And so this exacerbated um, hiring, it created more opportunities for hiring, it, it created opportunities to create community in, in different ways. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the other side of the coin, if you're, if you're kind of Fortune 500 or, or financial services, it sort of was clear that this was always going to happen. You were always going to come back to work and you were always going to. And so now it's just a matter of how, how many days, 
how do we monitor you and so forth and kind of the expectations and brain in media and we're not unique this way um this actually changed a lot of things we had we had people who never really thought about things you know innovating overnight we had edit bays that were in-house that all of a sudden got shifted to home and bandwidth was actually high enough to do things and so we did so we created so much progress in 2020 that now as we're kind of returning in 21 we're having these challenges with retention we're having these challenges with um you know what's the right answer how, how do you solve with if somebody tells you man i, I get it i get what you're saying you're gonna we're, we are gonna be more collectively productive if we're together but i haven't had a chance to cook for my kids every night ever before and i don't think i'm going back i mean those are conversations that are difficult ones and so managing that now has been has been a, a challenge and there's no real pathway playbook other than talking to other organizations and, and, and doing this in a really individualized way. Amit, as the CEO, how many direct reports do you have? Uh, good question. I think it's about seven right now, six or seven. Uh, we have about 30, 32 people at the company uh, full-time. And then, and then when we do these projects, these unscripted projects in particular, uh, we bring on a lot of freelancers. So we may have you know, 50, 60, 70 people working with us any given yeah. one time. We have yeah. uh, several things in productions right, production right now. Of the seven members of your team that report to you, mm -hmm. um, how would they assess your leadership style? What would they say are your strengths? And then the converse, what would they say are the things that you uh, need to grow and build as a CEO? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I you know, Sometimes I'd love to hear in a candid way, right? You, you have that those conversations, and then you always wonder at the end of them, did I get did I get the full feedback or not? Uh, the answer is but, no. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, but I start. I definitely start with I'm open. I would love to hear your feedback, and I, it's going to be you know used in the only way to make me better, and so forth. But but you're right. The answer is probably no. But I think I think the answer to that question is strengths are. I, I think I'm. Um, yeah, you know, people would say that I'm that I'm a, a very you know, thoughtful, uh, reflective leader, and so someone who is is thinking about multiple dimensions and trying to piece together. And one of the things, going back to one of your earlier questions around, around, um, around uh, uh, why. why, why am I doing this? Why am I in this business? Why am I doing something like this? It's about, you know, I want to be able to, again, create, create, create quick change, but then use information and many sources to make those decisions. So I feel like I'm able to use, you know, what's happening with the industry. Uh, how is content shift, consumption pattern shifting? How is buying shifting? How is, um, uh, needs from end customers or direct customers shifting, um, how's our brand perception shifting with what our team is excelling at, what I'm seeing, how our relationships are evolving to then make you know, decisions and shift both in like our five-year goals or quarterly goals, but also day-to-day. -day. And I think that's um, something the team would say, excel at and able to give autonomy in those things and, 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 um, and, and mobilize different ways rapidly, but with, with an eye towards what's what's meaningful and what's useful. I think, um, you know, in terms of struggling, it's so funny, um, it's having this conversation with, with one of our investors. You, know, you alluded to it. I, I grew out of BCG for almost a decade. I, I grew out of this world of, um, you know, almost uh, in some cases, right, not all, but analysis paralysis. Like we, we would create um, slide decks or Excel sheets or process um, that, that was almost over what was needed largely for the purpose of saying, look, we're leaving. And so this is kind of the playbook, the guidance and so forth. And, and that was just the way you did things. And um, I feel like what I've learned is almost, I've unlearned a lot of that. 
you know, to be nimble when you're a two, three, five person company, you got to move super rapid, super quick. Um, you know, now at the stage we're in, um, we have, you know, something like 17 things in production right now. Uh, we actually need a lot more process than we have at our company. And it's so funny to say, you know, I actually think that I can get a lot better at pulling from the toolkit of the things that I used to do, uh, of putting in process, putting process in place for a team that largely hasn't it hasn't come from that background. We, we did an analysis of our, of our company, less than you know 10%, like three or four employees have come from large organizations and have dealt with that kind of process, know what that feels like, know what it means to you know have layers in an organization, know what it means to go through a rigorous quarterly business review process, all those kinds of things. And I think I need to get a lot better at building that rigor back in. And, and that's not just about, oh, okay, let's just build it. As you know, it's not about just dumping that on the team, it's about uh, leading them, understand, making them understand why that's valuable. Why, why do you need to fill out a report? Why do you have to deal with extra calls that are internal that are not commercially oriented? Why do you have to do things that you didn't have to do before um, now? And so building that change back in the organization, I think I can get a lot better at. You know, there's an adage that perhaps is insulting that goes like this. Those who can't teach and those who really can't consult, which of course is preposterous, <laughs> but it's funny nonetheless. You know, uh, from your experience in business school at Columbia, with lots of theoretical case studies and models and such, and then of course your work for 10 years as a, a global consultant in a big five firm, what's different about the real job as CEO entrepreneur than what you thought it was like as a consultant at BCG and what you heard it was like and studied in business school? What are the maybe three or four things you'd say, oh, this was definitely different than I thought it was going to be? Yeah, so so many, so many things. It's a great question. I, I actually, actually one of the um, I speak at sometimes at a few uh, universities. One of the professors introduced me one time, jokingly, and he said, "Amit went in reverse in every way. He started as a consultant where he was an expert, then he became an investor, and then he became an entrepreneur. And so, you know, so many people do the reverse. But um, you know, to answer your question, I um, I, I think that the. The, the, well, first, first, just the obvious one that you would expect, which, but is but is absolutely true, which is you know, there's a totally different sense of owning something versus advising, right? There's there's a um, uh, there can be a theoretical answer, and, and we 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 tried our best at BCG to to try to get really in the shoes of the operators and say, how do I provide you something that's tangible? But you know, as Mike Tyson's old adage is, like everything works until you get according to plan, until you get punched in the face. I mean. You know, it, while you're operating, um, you know, the subject you're working with can decide they don't want to show up one day. You're running over budget. Then what do you do? Your resource has COVID. Right? What do you do? Uh, your funding is delayed. Your, I mean, so many things happen, and you have to deal and react in real time. And you have to throw the plan out the window in some cases, or you have to rejigger the plan. And you're not going to go build a new slide deck. You're going to deal with the operations on the field. And I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and and, and in a lot of ways, it's like, as we just talked about, it's, it's what required a lot of unwinding, right? It's required a lot of saying that we have to deal with what we're, we're building and how to build it. And um, I can have a plan that I showed the board, but even a month later or less, it could be out of date because things change really rapidly, really fast. Um, and so I think that's the most dramatic thing. And it's exacerbated by being an entrepreneurial endeavor. You know, example of that was, um, you know, early on, we, we made a decision to, to double down in audio because we thought it'd be a phenomenal resource to, to grow IP and use it in, in our unscripted documentary films, film, film space. 
But again, going back to my point, we really struggled to recruit early on. And so we couldn't invest the dollars we, we wanted to in audio. And so it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to schedule a board call and make a decision. It was just, look, we're seeing this happen in real time. Let's reallocate those dollars in some places that we think are real time. And then we'll go have a conversation about how the plan has changed later. And so I think those are, those are, those are definite um, things that I, I think are differences. I think more subtly, um, you know, just what the team is like and what the team needed. Um, consulting, uh, BCG uh, brings along really phenomenally talented people, uh, but who are looking for diversity of experience, who um, are inherently a little bit risk averse um, and to your point, are phenomenally smart. Um, and so how do you recruit, retain, um, uh, engage that group is completely different from a group of uh, fundamentally creative people who are in it commercially, but a lot of it is in it to be inspired by the place they are and the people they work with, and um, and and who you know sometimes it's it's the dollars, but sometimes it's a lot of other things. And so, building and retaining this workforce in a place that is our own, a place that we're building, is a completely different um, skill set from my perspective, and you know takes so many different things from. You know, again, I alluded to some of this around what we're dealing with the COVID of culture building, but you know, what's our culture? Uh, how do we how do we build tracks that make sense for people? How do you career path? How do you think about comp in a different world? How do you communicate equity to a group of people that haven't really dealt with that in the past? So those are all all things that have just been very very different. Hey, to quote Mike Tyson, which I never thought I would do in this podcast, I'm guessing you were metaphorically punched in the face like most <laughs> CEOs during COVID, like most humans for that matter. Uh, on the other side of this now, hopefully on the other side of the pandemic, how are you a different leader? How are you our different CEO in 2022 than perhaps you were in 2019? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I, I feel like everybody's changed um, regardless uh, because experience has changed. Uh, you know, I, I, one, I'm a lot more grateful for when, for when we have FaceTime and try to use it in a lot more present way. I think that, you know, Zoom, meetings uh, were extremely functional and, and provide a lot of utility. Uh, but but I think we we all we all lost something. And I think um, that came out in some of our work. Uh, hopefully we've minimized a lot of that. But I think a lot of it comes out in terms of longevity of relationship, strength of relationship, um, and, and then and then and the strength of what we're building as an organization, as a team. And so I try to be a lot more present um, in person in our meetings. I try to be intentional around not doing this weird thing where we're trying to set up an in-person meeting and have two people on Zoom. So we're having this awkward thing where everyone's catering to the minority. Uh, so I think, I think a lot of it's just dynamic. How do you build things together? I think the other thing is, is being a lot more, and it's kind of associated, but being a lot more thoughtful around culture. Um, you know, what do people care about? What's important to them? How do we think about this in a unique way post-COVID? I think those are all uh, very real and different questions. And, you know, we had them before, uh, but they're just a lot more in our face right now. It's, and, you know, we're, uh, our general, my general counsel and I were talking about this yesterday. It's not, these questions we're answering aren't related to COVID at all. They're all actually now, we're, we're you know, talking about we're past it, but these are all questions that we're dealing with. A lot of it was brought, a lot of these things were brought up because of COVID. And so how do we deal with these questions and, and issues in, in a very pragmatic way. And I think those are all things that hopefully I became a better leader because of, and I think our team um, collectively, you know, the goal is to build a stronger culture because of it as well. You've talked a lot today about the power of picking opportunities based on people and relationships. What do uh, Tom Ford, Michael Strayham, 
Gotham Chopra and you all have in common that makes this work? Obviously, there are more people and investors and clients and your associates, but amongst the four of you, the principals, so to speak, what's the red thread? What's the um, commonality that keeps this going? Yeah, you know, look, I, I mean, I, I would be... Um I would be humbled to say that I have some of the characteristics that Tom uh, Brady, Michael Strahan, and Gotham all have. I think what I learned from them, um, you know, is is and look, just to be clear, Tom and Michael are not day to day in our business; they're right. on our board. Right. They're supportive. They're there though to supercharge the business, bring connections, uh, help with recruiting, um, uh, help commercially. Uh, you know, they. But what I've learned is, you know, they both are the most infectiously positive people you'll meet. Um, and that's something that I think a great leader is, and I you know, work to aspire to be with my team. But they, you, know, you have a dinner with Tom, and all he's talking about is how amazing we are and how amazing it is that he's associated with our team and how premium the content is, how proud he is of the growth. And you know, he's not focusing on why didn't this happen or that happen. And you get inspired by that because you see what he's delivering on the field. You're in the boardroom with Michael, and Michael is the most gregarious, the most confident, the most positive person in the room. And you forget all the million of jobs he has, and he's focused on this company in that moment. And how can he bring his expertise there? And I would say that's a common thread between the two of them that I see that Gotham and I try to pull as, as leaders is how do you be positive through adversity? How do you, you know, have, have a stone face in, in, in the face of, of turmoil and conflict and all the things that are happening and be a source of stability to your team? I love that phrase, infectious positivity. I call it contagiously positive, right? Because it can become infectious yeah. and contagious. Um, and not to be a downer, but there's a downside to that because we've all worked with leaders, perhaps not Tom or Michael, with that level of uh, uh, success, you can work for someone who's so optimistic and positive where it's not real, meaning it's not relatable, where it actually can be so aspirational where you don't feel like they really understand how hard this is, right, or how difficult the journey is. How do you balance that infectious positivity with keeping them real and related to the business, to the challenges that you're dealing with as a CEO on a day-to-day business? Yeah, that's a great, great point. You know, I, I think that uh, first, I'll answer two ways. One is I think that every person, uh, that may be sustaining the obvious for your listeners, but just to state how I think about these, every person you lead um, has to be managed um, based on what they need, what, not what they want, and based on them individually. And sometimes that means a lot of encouragement. And sometimes that means being real, as you as you put it, more often than not. And and, and you kind of got to pick that out of who they are and what works. Um, and then to answer your direct question around how do you deal with this at a board level or with founders and others, I actually in the board setting, I think if you talk to our board members, would say I'm much more direct and honest than not. I feel like um, uh, filling up the room with um, a bunch of uh, feel good conversation and then having two hours go by without getting into the actual nuts and bolts of what's happening is not valuable. I feel like my role in that meeting with that group is to give them the hard facts, um, lead with what's what we're struggling with, and then look to them for support. 
Um, and, and we've got a healthy board that way that we've got a constructive relationship. And so I think, I think to, to answer your question, it's set for me, it's all about setting and it's about who I'm dealing with and what room I'm in. And, um, and that's the, the only way I've seen, you know, work. I imagine, I haven't seen Tom and Michael in other forums other than around our business. Um, I haven't really seen Tom and Otto. Uh, you've seen him, you know, with, with their content or even seen Michael, you know, behind the scenes at GMA. But I've seen him talking as a person, as a friend, and I've seen him in our, around our business. And I see them, you know, leaning into that positive nature. And so I can imagine that's that's what they're doing also, right? They think about the setting, thinking about how they can benefit us in, in this context. Uh, great insight. Uh, let's talk about the future of the religion of sports. What's next? What should customers and users uh, be anticipating in the future from you? Yeah, you know, we, we, we uh, manned the arena um, on ESPN Plus, uh, which launched in November, nine episodes. It chronicled Tom's Super Bowls, nine Super Bowls uh, uh, that he had been to at the time. Uh, and, then, and then last year he went to his 10th. And so episode 10 is coming out, um, uh, uh, you know, shortly. Uh, and so you'll see that on ESPN Plus. And, uh, and so definitely, you know, watch for that about the, the Bucks Super Bowl in that season. Um, we have, uh, yeah, if you haven't heard it, we had a, uh, several podcasts launched last year. False Idol was nominated for podcast of the year on several, several different, several different ways, which is around Oscar Pistorius. Um, Crush was a baseball oriented steroids podcast that was nominated for sports podcast of the year in several, several, several areas. And then, uh, Man of the Arena had a companion podcast that was very successful, which was not about Tom Brady. It was about characters who were impacted by him over the same 20 years. So those are all things that are happening. We, we have, um. We have several projects that we'll be announcing in the coming weeks that are launching, uh, both you know around uh, you know around some of the content that we, we've been developing, and so so look for that. You know, April, May, we'll both have launches, uh, and then this summer we'll have new audio slate to announce too. Best of success to you and your team members, Amit. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the time, Scott. It was awesome. And thanks for your time today on C-Suite Conversations. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.